0: Welcome to They Didn't Teach Us That in Seminary, the Broadmoor Baptist Church of Baton Rouge podcast. God, we look nice this morning, but we know you're looking in our heart. And so we pray you deal with us in that holy space where our thoughts, our feelings, our actions reside first. Change them for your purposes. Help us to know how this word of yours is for us too. We pray in Christ. Amen. Baptist Church, I'm very familiar with, was looking for a youth minister. They'd been looking for what felt like forever, and they'd chosen one quickly after there had become a vacancy. It turned out to be a bad decision. The youth began leaving the church. So the church did another search unless than a year finally they found someone they loved he related to the youth very well, he was young, exciting energetic, in the interview he passed the questions with flying colors his theology was tight his beliefs fit the church perfectly his ideas were creative and the search community began celebrating, this is our next minister of youth he can start immediately too but they did not hire him. Someone, not a youth, someone on the committee got word that this guy had a tattoo. In other words, as Bobby was explaining to the children, the appearance was the issue. His appearance didn't fit The sophisticated clean-cut business mood of that church and so disappointed some youth began to leave again well Samuel is like a one-man search committee he's searching for the next king of Israel he's a judge of Israel he's a very high ranking official in the court of King Saul but King Saul has been a disappointment been disobedient to God time after time after time. And finally, it says in verse 35 of chapter 15, the Lord repented or changed his mind. But he had made Saul king of Israel. And Samuel was grieved that God's spirit had left Saul. Samuel was part of that process of anointing Saul, the first king of Israel. But now Samuel is in a bad state of mind, feeling hopeless discouraged, grief, it says. And as you know, grief is the feeling of being stuck, of being stuck between the old hopes and dreams of the past and the emptiness of an unknowable future. But God has a way of getting us unstuck. God has a way of opening doors we never knew were there. God says... To Samuel, the time for grieving is past. What's done is done. Move on. Move forward. He says, get your oil, Samuel. You're going on a trip. You're going to Bethlehem. God says, there's someone there I want you to meet. I have provided for myself a king among the sons of a man named Jesse. Well, Samuel, who's grieving stuck he's also afraid and for good reason if Saul hears I'm on a trip to this tiny little town in the middle of nowhere in the southern edge of the territory he'll know surely what I'm up to it's treason he'll kill me no king is willing to share his throne with another king and so it's a terrible idea. But rather than giving in to Samuel's hopelessness, God gives Samuel a plan for his protection, which sounds close to a lie, by the way. Take an animal for a sacrifice. Tell the people you're just in the neighborhood and you want to have a worship service with them. Well, that isn't why Samuel is really going to Bethlehem. Is God suggesting he lie? Well, Samuel did take an animal, and he did have a worship service. So technically, it wasn't a lie. It's what Walter Brueggemann calls authorized deception. You may want to use that sometime. (laughs) Authorized deception. He's authorized to deceive people in order to protect not only Samuel, but Jesse and his sons. The elders in Bethlehem were as frightened as Samuel. No high ranking official came to their part of the territory without wanting something. Samuel's in the business of king making and king breaking. He'll either take something from us or he's going to bring the wrath of Saul down on our village for this scheme. So the sacrifice idea was for their protection. God's in the security business too. Well, they'd worship service. Jesse, like a God-fearing father, brought his children with him to worship. Happy Father's Day. Brought his children, well, almost all of them. Some were still too young to go to worship. They were still in extended session they won't get it let's keep the youngest one in extended care so the young uninvited David stays out in the pasture tending sheep you see the next king of Israel is absent from the worship service he's not in church Who else is out there not in worship today that God has a mind to use? And why haven't they been invited to come? I heard just today about a Pew study that finds that the greatest gap between young adults who don't go to church and parents who do go to church is found in assertively Christian countries. Young adults between 18 and 39 years old they do not go to church, found in Christian countries most. Maybe they are uninvited. The uninvited Davids out there, absent from ours. Now, what does God think about it? God pauses the worship service. We don't hear it in the story, but there was a pause because someone had to go and fetch David from the pasture. It must have been an awkward, long pause, too. God won't make the next move until all are invited and included, especially those who do not fit, who do not look the part. They probably have tattoos, So Jesse lines up his oldest seven sons for the service. The eldest, Eliab, is first. He's first for many reasons in his society because the first son gets the blessing of the father. The first son has the status and position to have preference over the others. But as in our time, he also possesses some other features that make him the natural choice. He was tall and handsome. That's why we had Jacob read this morning. His appearance in the eyes of the one-man search committee determined his worth. Samuel was ready to call Eliab. Today, products are marketed using the appearance of youth and sexuality they have nothing to do with a product. Ever notice that? Even products that can harm us or harm others. Made to look cool. Clothes and fashion are so important. Especially in school, right? Your friends might choose you or reject you over the clothes you wear or don't. People today are revered and respected because of the house they own, the car they drive, the club they join, the church they attend, the political party they support, the color of their skin, their gender, and so forth and so forth. So Eliab represents all those who get the job simply because they look the part. Well, Eliab may look the part, but he doesn't have the heart. The story of King David is, if nothing else, the story of how God chooses the least in order to be the greatest. Notice how unlikely David is as a candidate, at least in the eyes of mortals. He's a shepherd boy, lives in a tiny village in the middle of nowhere. He's from a family that has no obvious pedigree, He's the youngest of eight. He's so far down on the chain of status and position that he isn't even included in the worship service. He's absent from the obvious candidates for king. He doesn't fit the world's expectations. He's the least likely of all those who could become Israel's hope. Now when God judges, God looks past the appearance and goes straight to the heart. He isn't impressed by our clothes, our car, our degree, bank account, color, gender, age, height, weight, and all of those things they take at the doctor's office. God ignores what we use to qualify and disqualify. And we don't know what God saw in David's heart, do we? We can't recreate David's heart in ours. But that's not the point of the story. It's about how God judges us, not by appearance, but by what's on the inside. So the message is this. We must not base our decisions and judgments of people simply on the outward image. You know, judging a book by its cover. Now, being attractive isn't necessarily a bad thing, as you know. After all, in the end, Samuel sees David and sees he's handsome. He's attractive to men and to women. Being attractive isn't bad, but it's not the criteria whereby we judge people. And neither can we recreate that heart someone has written that the story of the life of David can be summed up in this one question. Two words. Can he? Can he? Can he, a boy, defeat a Philistine giant and champion? Can he? Can he, a boy, escape the wrath of King Saul? Can he, a fugitive and outlaw, become the king of God's people? Can he whose grandmother was Ruth, an immigrant Moabite woman, can he become God's king? Can he whose ancestors include a Canaanite woman named Tamar, nearly executed for adultery, and a Canaanite prostitute from Jericho named Rahab, can he be a king? Can he, a man whose relative will one day be born in a manger, an animal stall, a Galilean, mere carpenter's son, a crucified criminal, can he be the hope of Israel, the hope of the world? Can he? And who is this story really about after all? Now think about it. Samuel is not the center of action in this story. Samuel only does everything God tells him to do. That's it. And David is not the main character in the story either. He doesn't have a name until the end, and he doesn't speak a word, and no one speaks to him. The center of this story is about only one, The one who says, I have rejected Saul. I will send you to Jesse. I have provided myself a king. I will show you what you shall do. The one whom I name to you and who says, rise and anoint him. He is the one. The story of David is really just a story of what God can do. About the amazing grace of God. Professor of mine in seminary was at a seminar. It ended at lunchtime on Saturday, but his flight wasn't due to take off until the next night. So he wanted to go to church Sunday morning. He found a church near the hotel's neighborhood. He didn't know what kind of church it was. It had a small building. He got there a little early and sat down. He said the people were warm and friendly. The choir came in pastor came in. He says, I was completely shocked. The pastor was tall, about 6'4". He was also very large, about 280 to 300 pounds. He says, but the most notable feature was his stumbling, lumbering gait. He was awkward, almost falling with his long, useless arms by his side. His head was misshapen. His hair was askew. He stumbled up three or four steps to the pulpit. When he turned to face us, the congregation, he said, I saw thick glasses, and through the thick glasses, I saw a milky film over the eyes. One of them was going out. And when he read the book, the scripture, he held it close to his nose. When he spoke, he says it it was as if he had just learned how to speak as an adult. He says, but I lost consciousness of all that after a while. He says, I listened to the sermon, which was not very impressive, it was not poetic, it was not prophetic, but he says it was pastoral. It was so warm and full of love and affection, it was firm but full of exhortation. He says, but the relationship between those people and the love that came back to them from the pulpit was amazing. They sat quietly, leaning forward in their pew, captivated, as you are. He said, I was captured. What is this, he said? How could this grotesque creature so full of love, deliver this. I didn't understand. He said, I began remembering things I shouldn't have started remembering. All those stories about how people who have grotesque features sometimes are given a special quality of affection. Beauty and the Beast. The Hunchback of Notre Dame. So ugly and yet so beautiful. Those people who would gladly hug you. Those people who would stand at a distance. He says, is that what I'm seeing here? The providence of God that gives people who lack in attractiveness on the outside a special quality on the inside. He said, I wanted to get acquainted with this extraordinary preacher, so I lingered around hoping to have lunch with him, but he couldn't go. So I stood there and watched him as he greeted his people, hellos, words of affection, pastoral care, respect between him and the members. He said there was one woman who came to him. I guess she was 70, shook his hand at the door, and she spoke with him, and she said this, I wish I could know your mother. He said, I saw her having the same trouble I was having. She didn't understand the source of this and thought maybe I wish I knew your mother. He said to her, My mother's name is Grace. He said, When everybody left, we sat down to visit and we sat on the back pew. And he said to this strange preacher, I thought that was an unusual response you gave to that woman. My mother's name was Grace. He said, is it? When I was born, he said, I was put up for adoption at the Department of Family Services. He said, but as you can see, nobody wanted to adopt me. So I went to a foster home to foster family after foster family after foster family until I was 16 or 17. And one day I saw some young people going in to a church. And I wanted to be with young people. And so I went in. He said, there I met grace. Grace of God. The story of the life of David... Is also about another question. Two words. Can God can God who called little David, who judges not according to the world's ways and expectations, can that God keep working in unexpected ways with unexpected people? Can God who called little David, who caused the least and the lowest, keep calling those that have little and they're not well-known? Can God, who raises the young and the powerless to battle the Goliath, can God keep empowering the young and the powerless to do battles with Goliaths today? Can God, who called little David, call people like you and me, who are not CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, who have no stars on the walk to Hollywood, who aren't running for president, who don't have a championship ring? Can those of us who are absent from the lineup of the obvious be God's choice today? Can He? Can God do this? Of course. He does. And He can. Because you and I are also a child of grace. Pray with me, please. We are here, Lord, lovely and not so lovely. Some of us brought our best clothes, but not our best heart. You saved those two, And that would make us the least likely, I guess. But you you call those unexpected. Lord, let us hear your voice. Let us know you love us. Call those that you... Prepare to use those you need, each of us, to your higher purpose. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to They Didn't Teach Us That in Seminary, the Baltimore Baptist Church of Baton Rouge podcast. Please like,
1: review, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube. If you have any questions, please submit them through the Anchor app. Or join us on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. right in our own Broadmoor Baptist Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Otherwise, I hope you have a good week.